it is, I'm going to be honest with you, it is, you do feel very vulnerable talking about these things because you don't want to affect your future career opportunities. And I guess it's fear that stops people from being brutally honest about what it feels like to be discriminated against. You're listening to the Medical Protection Podcast Real World Series, where we expose the pain points and explore how we navigate the complexity of healthcare today. My name is Dr. Najib Rahman. I'm an emergency medicine consultant in the NHS, as well as a senior medical educator with MPS. One of the important concepts I wanted to explore in greater depth were the challenges linked to cultural safety. We increasingly recognize the role that power relationships, prejudice and unconscious bias has an unfairly impact on the colleagues we work with and the care we provide. In recognizing that listening to the stories of others can support the development of cultural curiosity and self-reflection, I had the privilege of talking with Ms. Rohana Mir. Rohana is a senior colorectal surgical trainee based in the UK. This was a really impactful podcast for me in terms of both its honesty and candor, and one that I've had to listen to a few times to reflect on. I hope you feel able to engage with the opportunity in a similar way. Welcome, Rahana. Thank you. So, Rahana, first off the bat, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to your current role. So, I was born and raised in Yorkshire. I'm a Leeds girl, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I had my arm twisted by my parents and went to Leeds University. So, I ended up staying at home for my university years, but I travelled quite a bit. Um, for example, my elective, I went abroad, and I also did an international health BSc during medical school where I worked for the UN and lived in the Middle East for some of that. Um, what led me to medicine? Um, I guess seeing relatives uh, growing up having ill health, actually, and, and seeing the impacts that their doctors had on them, particularly surgeons who actually, um, you know, if, a, for example, my grandma, she had um, a really big heart attack, she needed a bypass operation, and as a teenager, seeing her in hospital, to me, the surgeon was a person that allowed us to have extra time with her for a good 20 years, actually, after that heart attack. Um, so I guess that's kind of what led me to where I am today. Thank you for sharing that. Now, um, I'm sitting here with you in the studio, whereas our listeners might not be able to, to identify that because it's a podcast. But some of the visible things about you is that you are Muslim by faith and yeah. wear a hijab. You're a person of colour. You're a woman as well. So identity and culture is what makes us and gives us our sense of belonging. But when we explore these layers of your identity, I wonder if you're able to share some of the challenges you've experienced and aspects where we, you know, where these layers might have had an impact on your personal and professional development. So quite honestly, growing up, my parents always taught me to be proud of my heritage. But um, in the workplace and at university, it never and never occurred to me that people see me as wearing a headscarf. When I think of myself, I don't actually see myself as wearing one. It's just something that I've worn for most of my life. Um, it's actually other people's behaviour that's made me realise that I'm different rather than me being aware of it. And probably up until five years ago, I wasn't aware of being treated differently through medical school. I had a very good experience and actually even as an SHO, really enjoyed my training, didn't feel like I was treated differently. On reflection, I think the last five years have been different because I'm working with the most senior people in the NHS more closely. And since I've become a registrar, I've become more aware of discrimination in the workplace, different training opportunities and the impact that that has on my training. 
So it's actually something I've become aware of because of other people's behaviour rather than something I've gone into and been thought, yeah, actually I am different because I've never been raised to feel that I'm different. It's something that my environment's made me aware of. Right. So no, thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. And I think this does speak a little bit to what we discussed in the introduction about power dynamics and power relationships. So do you feel that based on that power differential, um, have you felt disempowered, disenfranchised, or have you felt there's been opportunities to try and engage with that power differential and to, to speak about it more openly? I try and speak about racism and discrimination openly because I think that's the key thing to change. And when I look at some of my seniors, they are very hesitant to talk about it. But um, what I see in the workplace is people that perhaps might get the job opportunities that they want, but then if they've kept their head down throughout their training, they then have to keep their head down throughout their consultant career as well. And uh, I think it's about engaging with people on a, on, on, a, on a level that they can understand. And that conversation perhaps has to be adapted to each person. The way that I'm speaking to you would be very different to how I would speak to some of my other senior male colleagues, because you almost have to curate the conversation. And I don't want it to be a confrontation. I actually want to try and bring people's minds to think why they have certain beliefs and what's led them to that point. Okay, fantastic. So there's definitely something about groups having a sense of agency to represent who they are. But clearly, there's a two-way process here. And there's a powerful element of self-reflection required from other parties as well to be able to be willing to listen, I guess, and understand that narrative. Mm. How, how has that really occurred? I mean, have you had examples where when you have brought up these issues that the other parties have been willing to listen and to self-reflect and address those biases. And I guess, more importantly, what is the risk when that doesn't happen? Do you find yourself being a little bit of a lone voice? I mean, the people that I've come across in my training, and, and the main issue for me is, you know, people's personal beliefs, they can have them, but when it impacts my training, when it impacts, impacts patient care, then I feel obliged to speak up, particularly when it comes to patients. They tend to be generally of a certain age and it's very difficult to change people's mindset. Um, I like to think that my work ethic speaks for itself and perhaps that can change people's um, perception of Asian Muslim women working in, in, in being part of the workforce. Quite honestly, I don't think I have managed to change anybody's perception. There's nobody that's turned around and said, yeah, I thought somebody like you would be rubbish. <laughs> You've actually changed my mind about it. I try and engage in dialogue if it's comfortable to do so, but it, it's not comfortable to do so the majority of the time. My way of, of dealing with things is really to focus on patient care. And if I see it that a patient perhaps that is, um, you know, from background where they're more prone to discrimination, whether they're homeless, whether they're female, they are not educated, they can't speak English, I try and be a good advocate for them. That, to me, is the most important thing. My training itself, I feel quite limited in how I can change people's perception, to be honest with you. Okay, there's a lot to unpick there. And I want to kind of use... A further lens to look deep, a little bit deeper into this because I understand that you're also a parent yeah and we recognize the challenges of modern training you know and and the portfolios that we have to complete the logbooks we have to complete have there been any particular challenges with you being a mother and surgical training 
Um, I mean, there used to be a time where being a woman used to mean that you had different opportunities. And I think that's really changed. Now it's more being a parent and having your commitments outside of the hospital. It's things like getting your rotor on time. You know, I I don't think I've ever received a rotor within the recommended six week notice. And, you know, you need your rotor to be able to plan childcare. Um, I work 80 percent, so I have a fixed day off. I think generally speaking, it works well for me. I know a lot of my senior seniors and my colleagues feel that uh, it perhaps shows less commitment but I do just as much operating as them and I don't think it affects my confidence it's more about perception I've worked in trusts where um, the some of the female consultants have worked less than full-time themselves and my experience has been really positive which has made me realize that it's completely about perception of, of parents um, in the workplace and I think increasingly my male uh, trainee colleagues are wanting to be more involved in their children's upbringing so that's actually causing a cultural shift covid has also changed how people you know realize things like mdts you can do them from home virtually which means that you can still engage in some level of childcare, or be physically present um, for your family for me i think 80 percent is a good balance that means doing 80 percent of all shifts and having a fixed day off gives me a little bit of predictability. It means I can do things like this, you know, do podcasts, engage in other things outside of the workplace. Um, and I think in when I look at medical students now and their, you know, their priorities and work-life balance, I think 80% will become the norm. Um, you know, a normal working week for a registrar is 46 hours. I work 38. And my husband, who's not a medic, works 37. But that's full-time. So a full-time job is usually 37 hours, and I actually am expected to work more than that. Yeah, no, I think you're right um, about the cultural shift of how we work in an increasingly complex healthcare environment. I think the intensity and cognitive burden of routine work in a in modern healthcare is particularly challenging. So giving people that time and space to recover and maintain their well-being is, is going to be critical. But part of it is also about teams and collegiality. And I think what you've already discussed earlier on was that sometimes the othering based on our identity prevents us from being genuinely part of a team. How do you then find collegiality? Are there other forums, for example, uh, you know, through social media forums or other groups that, that I guess help you to find commonality with others and to then find strength or uh, you know, to talk about some of the challenges you face and, and have some more collective wisdom so that you're not just a single person with a label and actually you've got other colleagues to try and face through some of these challenges so as a mother as a woman for example in surgery um so I think when I became a parent that was a big shift for me because um I kind of joined a group of other women in mums in surgery and I knew that there were a few of them dotted around so I decided on some random night where I was awake with my three-month-olds to set set up this network for mums in surgery and I thought there's probably a few of us around. We can help each other, support each other, particularly with going back to work after maternity leave. So I set up this network and we're now, it feels a bit like an army. There's 360 mothers in surgery that are on there and they range from TPDs to consultants to SHOs. And we kind of read if there's any training issues or problems with going back to work after maternity leave, we really do support each other. People can raise questions, share their experiences. That's been very empowering. Um, and, and while I'm aware of the fact that people may see me as an other or, you know, because I'm an Asian woman wearing a headscarf in surgery, to, to me, my headscarf just has never been an issue in my mind. 
Um, I'm born and bred in Yorkshire. I consider myself a Leeds girl. That's a, probably a bigger part of my identity in my head than what I look like. And as I said, it's only other people's behaviour that makes me realise that I'm seen as another. I certainly don't feel like another in my own mind, at least. No, there's a, a dichotomy. So I guess just to go back to the months... That's, and... that's from, from how I've been raised, though, you know, because my parents have never said to me, you're different, you're going to have different opportunities. Perhaps that was a bit naive of them to, to not make me aware of how I would be perceived. I mean, I saw when I was growing up how they faced discrimination in, in the workplace. Um, my dad came here when he was 19 and he was an orphan, so he didn't have the same opportunities to get the education that he wanted and he made made a life for himself. And my mum grew up in the UK but still faced a lot of discrimination in the workplace when she graduated from the university, she joined a typing pool. That was the only job that she could get as a woman, just you know, as, as her first job. And she used to laugh and say, I used to correct people's mistakes in their letters because I was better educated than the person dictating them. And it, you know, we talk about what things were like growing up. For me, my parents, I think, cocooned me from the world outside and and just wanted to give every opportunity to their children and say, if you work hard, you'll you'll get to where you want to be. So that's always been the mindset that I have, even now. In consultation with Rahana, we've decided to edit this part of the conversation to protect all parties from potential fallout. Without getting into specifics, Rahana shared examples of organised, even systematic discrimination that she had experienced during the early stages of her medical career here in the UK. It's interesting now because departments have completely changed and they're all based in one, one site. But the year that I started school, these conversations were happening and it's just two completely different worlds and they were only happening a few miles apart. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that's huge, isn't it, in some ways to try and understand historical legacies of... But it's not that long ago. That's well, yeah, well, we say historical and it does beg the question then is have we really moved forward or what else is left to dismantle? And I think, again, when you spoke earlier about the challenges and the othering. And, you know, clearly you come across as someone who's very confident in your own skin and, are, you know, is willing to champion yourself and, and your own rights. And you said that might have been because of your own personal experiences and, and upbringing. But surely then there must be other circumstances where colleagues who maybe have not had the same upbringing or, uh, I guess, understanding of their own culture and identity would have really struggled with that. And then would have to either compromise or be left out. What I find more depressing is when I have conversations with my colleagues who are of colour about, you know, discrimination that's happened in the workplace and they point to their skin and say, look at us, we can't say anything, just keep your head down. And then when you're finished, you can say what you like. But in reality, if you have that mindset, you're always going to have to behave in that way. You can't suddenly become a consultant and you know, say whatever you like. If you've spent your whole life accepting that you're different and that you are inevitably going to be treated differently to your white uh, colleagues, then I don't think that suddenly does a U-turn later on in life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's two things that I, I want to kind of discuss on this. So one is, given the experience that you've had with the Mums in Surgery group, is there then a need for, and again, the Mums Surgery Group, from what I understand, this is not something that's formalised within an NHS structure. This is no, kind of no, an informal it group. It has to be an informal thing because it can't have allegiance to any other organisation to allow people to, to feel safe. To feel safe. Yeah, it's a safe space to express 
problems. And if there's allegiance to uh, whether it's the Royal College of Surgeons or the Association of Surgeons in Training or the NHS, then you almost have to filter out the responses. And this is quite a, a raw but safe space for women to express their problems. So, I mean, it has huge impact on the family, on people's mental health. And it's not just about being a person of colour. I mean, being a woman in surgery is an incredibly tough gig. I was going to ask, and building on that experience of that independence, have you then found that because it's that safe space, that other individuals on that group have really valued, you know, apart from the camaraderie and collegiality, have there been opportunities where they felt more empowered and demonstrate leadership and advocate for change in their workplace or, or be able to face those challenges in a new light? I think for some people it's been career saving. You know, they've had, the thing is when you become a doctor, you are then in a small niche, like a, a niche, and then you become a mum and you're in an even smaller niche. And then when you decide to pursue surgery, you kind of become in this very tiny subset of people where only people in your own world can really understand the intricacies of the problems that you're facing in the workplace. And I guess that's the beauty of it is that people can ask questions, women can ask questions anonymously as well. It doesn't have to be tied to their name um, because the world of surgery is very small. And sometimes I'm asked to alter a few details before posting a question to allow people to get the answer that they need. Um, so I think it's a it's a really useful resource. And, and as I said, it, for some people, it saved their career and saved them from leaving surgery altogether. Okay. And then the, the second aspect then to that consideration is that we have seen a bit of a proliferation of um, you know, BME network groups within NHS organizations or, you know, sponsored by, by a hospital. And, you know, they, they do have a lot of inclusion with uh, colleagues from across the healthcare workforce, from nurses, APs, et cetera, not just physicians and surgeons. How, how have you found, if at all, the value add of those kind of forums in helping to shift the conversation? Or do you find, again, this ends up being tokenistic endeavor? versus something that meaningfully, meaningfully feeds back into changing, ultimately, people's biases and prejudices, the unconscious ones and the conscious ones. So I was involved in a, a BME network in a trust in Yorkshire uh, during COVID because I had to shield for a period of, of uh, 2020. And it just gave me an insight into how complicated um, the sort of management side of a hospital is. And what it did make me realise is when I do finally choose a trust to work for as a consultant, I really will look at what the BME network is doing and achieving and whether it is tokenistic work, because every trust has a B, most trusts do have a BME network, but what do they achieve? They're, they're a forum, but what's the outcome? And and is is a voice given to the right people? Do they have an sort of honorary role or is it a permanent role? The people that I know that are involved in BME networks are often doing this work in their own time. Is that right? Are there other issues that because these things are not just about the workplace, they're about patient safety. They shouldn't be a it shouldn't be a voluntary thing. It should be done in as part of your role in the NHS. So I don't think there's a straightforward answer to <laughs> what the these BME networks um role is. But I know that it, what I have learned is that it's very complicated. Yeah. And sorry, just for audience who might be outside the UK, from terminology perspective, BME in the UK stands for Black Minority Ethnic um, Groups, uh, which has kind of developed from 
uh, BAME, and actually the new terminology sometimes people are looking at is minoritized ethnic groups. So I suspect there'll be changes in the future in how we uh, group people's identity in some ways. But this does make me wonder, Rohana, that you know, if these have been your personal experience, given your background, what must this be like for some of our patients? Because there's a challenge to diversity you know, all the time, but yet we have to acknowledge we live in diverse communities and diversity is not just based on ethnicity and color. It could be linked to deprivation, could be, you know, we all have different cultural identities. So have you found historically, you know, where your identity has supported a more positive patient encounter compared to perhaps, uh, you know, uh, not to stereotype here, but let's say a white male single colleague and how they would have approached someone from a different cultural background. Have you observed that in your own practice? So we know from research that in the UK today, one in five women giving birth die during childbirth. The statistics that Rohana just shared regarding maternal deaths in the UK struck me as being very high. And so we clarified this after the recording. When reviewing the Embrace UK reports, which is part of the national programme conducting surveillance and confidential investigation into maternal deaths, it is reassuring that pregnancy in the UK remains very safe, where between 2017 and 2019, out of 2,173,801 women giving birth, 495 women died during or up to one year after their pregnancy. However, of those deaths, Asian women were twice as likely to die and black ethnic women were four times more likely to die than women from white groups. The reference can be found in the podcast description. And that's not a complete coincidence. It's There's lots of complexities there, but some of it is to do with lack of diversity in the workforce. And I take pride in the fact that I could advocate for the person who speaks a different language because I can speak two languages, one a bit better than the other. Um, and I like to see myself as an advocate for the person that perhaps doesn't have a voice and whether that's someone that's a female or homeless or a drug addict. I feel like we should focus on those patients and give them extra time. Um, I think I also do give a different perception and and sort of I've noticed in my own training, for example, women, especially Asian women, when they say they're in pain, they are ignored. And I do challenge that when my colleagues are like, oh, well, another woman, typical, she's in pain, we can't get on top of it, she's going to be here forever. I'm like, well, pain is a subjective thing. And if a patient's saying that she's in pain, we need to listen to that. We shouldn't ignore it. So I like to think that I do advocate for patients that not only look and look like myself, but from, from other backgrounds where perhaps they are more likely to be dismissed. No, this is really interesting because, in fact, there was a recent study uh, from, I think, North America, where they looked at analgesia prescribed post in children post-tonsillectomy and adenectomy. And they found that if you were from a Latino-Hispanic background, you received about, I think it was 30% less opioid analgesia. Yeah. So you know one can argue with the physical pain following adenectomy, tonsillectomy. It's not mm. even subjective. And yet they know there's <laughs> variations. So, so I think what you alluded to in terms of this um, again, unconscious biases and assumptions and rationalization of care that occurs because you make assumptions about you know, patients or others it is something we really need to reflect upon. And, you know, one of the things is, OK, it's, it's one thing to look at someone externally and try to understand their story and their perspective. And I think part of this conversation today is really about that, trying to understand your story. But unless we look at the mirror and try to say, OK, what do I need to then be able to do? 
to progress this conversation, to lead to a more culturally safe environment where people belong. I think that's you know one of the things we need to really think about. And, and it's interesting because when I'm a patient and people don't know that I'm a doctor, I'm I am dismissed. And as soon as they find out that I'm a surgeon, the dynamic completely shifts. <laughs> and I don't like to use the, my connection to being a healthcare profession to get where I need to be, but I often do have to because otherwise I just don't get listened. Well, you don't have the agency otherwise, right? So, and, and I think this is where I'm sure many of the listeners would have experienced and observed similar challenges. And and that leads me to kind of asking this question about what are the allies that we need? I mean, people talk about allyship and sometimes, again, that can be used just as a um, as a badge to, to wave. But allyship, in my mind, really reflects that long-term commitment to change. Um, I mean, I have see you had allies in your journey? I guess allyship for me is people recognising their own privilege. You know, if you're a white male in the NHS or as a patient, you have a lot of privilege and people do listen to you. I have privilege in that I've been brought up in the UK and I understand the nuances of communication. And I think we should all use our privilege to help our colleagues get to where they need to be. As opposed to taking them. So I, I presume you would have had to compete, for example, for, as you said before, if you're less than full time, a mother, you have to compete for theatre space, uh, for training opportunities. And Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I've actually, um, <clears throat> sometimes it's not even competition. I've had trainers that have taken opportunities out of my hands and offered them to another. And that's been very, very difficult. Like I said, that's only within the last five years prior to becoming a registrar. I never had these problems, but that's because I wasn't dealing so directly with the people at the top. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I wonder then, so, you know, thank you for being so candid as part of this conversation, but how often have you been invited to talk about these issues within the workplace as such? And, you know, or have you offered, I mean, it sounds like you've offered those conversations. Have people been willing to listen? What would be your call to action, you know, from a position of a trainee, which technically is quite a vulnerable position, uh, in terms of cultural it is, identity. It is. I'm going to be honest with you. It is. You do feel very vulnerable talking about these things because you don't want to affect your future career opportunities. But I take pride in bringing my true self to work. And it's it's feedback that I often do get that, you know, the thing we like about Rahana is that she's her true self. Um, in terms of being invited to talk about these issues, I've attended online webinars to talk about race in surgery and discrimination and I just found them so curated and watered down and non-committal. And I guess it's fear that stops people from being brutally honest about what it feels like to be discriminated against. Right. So, you know, we've got to tackle this. This is the so first time that I've been invited to talk about it and I may regret it. <laughs> I decide not to do this again. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think, well, what this does it's, it's, show... It's uncomfortable. I'll be honest with you. It's yeah. uncomfortable because you... It's out in the public domain and you don't, well, I know that it's, it's available to anyone and I, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just an uncomfortable territory because I've not done it before. And I don't see people around me engaging with these dialogues. I don't have in my mind, oh yeah, that person that's more senior than me had this conversation and it turned out well for them. I just don't see that. People generally do keep their head down and don't want to talk about the missed opportunities in their training. Yes. Yeah. And I think in, in my mind, really, this goes back to understanding what is cultural safety is that firstly, this has to be uh, led really powerfully, right? This has to be creating a vision of where we want to get to. 
And everyone has a role in that. I think it clearly is about recognizing those power differentials and checking our own biases and being open to addressing our own personal fears and biases mm. and challenging them and learning and growing them and, and growing through that. I think so the other thing is when you do challenge, you know, you say, I'm not getting the same training opportunities as the other person, then you're labeled as difficult, problematic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, and then and then if you're not getting the same training opportunities, then you're not going to be as competent. And you're going to have more problems in your practice, but you're kind of set up for failure from the very beginning because of people's own ideas about who you are and what you should be doing. I mean, I get I get told all the time, why don't you do breast? And it's like, well, why do you want, why do I need to do breast surgery? Is it because that's easier for you to digest? Yeah. And like I'm ST5, like I'm in my mid-30s, it's too late for me to change the direction of my career. Neither do I want to. I've decided on colorectal quite a while ago. Yeah. And yet. I still get told, why don't you do breast? Just because yeah. that fits better in people's narrative of what I should be. Yeah, no, so this really is a, a challenge and a call for action to, to reflect on our own power that we have um, and to check our unconscious biases in some way. So, Rohana, you know, I really appreciate you giving the time for this. You know, it clearly hasn't been uh, an easy conversation. And it kind of needs to reflect and talk through his experiences. So I really want to, you know, thank you for sharing so candidly. And I'm you know, pretty much in awe of you. So so thank you. Uh, you know, of all the achievements you've had despite the barriers. I have a poem that I wanted to share. Please do, because I was going to ask, you know, what would you like to share as a, as a closing <clears throat> moment to help motivate and inspire? I think, yeah, I think I'll end on this poem, um, which I, I really like. And actually, I only read it this morning. So just bear with me while I find it. Um, I'll have to look up the credit and put it in at some point. Oh, well, so, so there'll be some materials linked to this podcast afterwards, yeah. so we'll send that out as a link. So the poem is called Breathe, and it really does summarise how I think a lot of women in my position feel. Um, but we should put the credit to the person who wrote it at the end. So it goes, she sat at the back and they said she was shy. She led from the front and they hated her pride. They asked her advice and then questioned her guidance. They branded her loud, then they were shocked by her silence. When she shared no ambition, they said it was sad. So she told them her dreams and they said she was mad. They told her they'd listen, then covered their ears and gave her a hug while they laughed at her fears. And she listened to all of it, thinking she should be the girl they told her to be best as she could. But one day she asked what was best for herself instead of trying to please everyone else. So she walked to the forest and stood with the trees. She heard the wind whisper and dance with the leaves. And she spoke to the willow, the elm and the pine, and she told them what she had been told time after time. She told them she never felt nearly enough. She was either too little or far, far too much. Too loud or too quiet, too fierce or too weak, too wise or too foolish, too bold or too meek. Then she found a small clearing surrounded by firs, and she stopped and she heard what the trees said to her. And she sat there for hours, not wanting to leave, for the forest said nothing, it just said, let her breathe. This was a really powerful conversation and was definitely not easy listening. The poem Breathe by Becky Hemsley, taken from her book titled Talking to the Wild, was particularly poignant. I have to admit that as we stopped recording the conversation, the emotions got the better of all of us who were in the room. But for me, it emphasised why it is so vitally important that we do take the time needed to listen, reflect and understand. There clearly is a need for us as health workers and colleagues to move through our fears and assumptions, to learn and grow 
so as to deliver care that is equitable, sustainable and fair.